Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today, my old museology guru, Susie Chung, is joining me to talk to Henry Crawford, the former curator of history for the Museum of Texas Tech University. He's currently affiliated with Science Spectrum Museum in Lubbock, Texas, and is the owner-operator of History by Choice, a living history consulting company. In this episode, we talk about Henry's career in museums, living history as a way of engaging with the public, and perhaps most exciting of all, model railroads. So what is your name and what do you do? Well, my name's Henry Crawford, actually Henry B. Crawford, B is my middle initial, and I am retired curator of history from the Museum of Texas Tech University. I was there for 25 years. Right now, I work part-time at the Science Spectrum Museum. It's a science and technology museum in Lubbock, Texas, where I'm in charge of the model railroad layout at the Science Spectrum. So, and this year actually marks my 39th year in the museum profession. Um, I also am the founder and owner of my, my entity called History by Choice, which is the, uh, which is what I use when I do my public programs, public lectures, living history programs, etc. And, uh, the name History by Choice just comes up because, um, it's my initials, HBC. 15-year-old me is so jealous of you being the uh, model railroad <laughs> curator. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it, my, my title is, actually. I think, I think they call me the train master. <laughs> so, that's but awesome. I've been doing model railroading since I was about 12, and I found out that the science spectrum was looking for somebody to run the model railroad layout, and I called the museum director, who I knew, and uh, she knew I was retired, but she didn't know that I'd been a model railroader for 40-something years. So I told her that, and she said, come on down, talk to us. And so I went over there and uh, looked at what they had and told them what I thought it needed, and they hired me on the spot. And I can I can run my own trains on it. I can run theirs. I, I built it up to where it's really something interesting, and um, I'm having a great a lot of fun with it. The layout also has a museum on it, too. It's got to have a museum. It's got a living history outdoor museum. That I built wow. So. <laughs> museums within museums. This is getting very metaphysical. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what is your academic and professional background? Academic background is I have a bachelor's degree from Western Illinois University out in Macomb, Illinois, West Central Illinois, and uh, majored in history and minored in outdoor education. And I have a, that, that, that outdoor ed Minor included uh, camping, backpacking, nature study, uh, curriculum, outdoor curriculum development, counseling, things like that. Uh, the curriculum also included uh, five weeks backpacking in the Wyoming Rockies, which was a lot of fun. And uh, my graduate degree is from University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. I graduate. I have a grad master's degree in history and art history. And uh, at the time that I was I was getting my degree there, I was working at the Milwaukee Public Museum. So I was at the Milwaukee Public Museum as a student and as a professional. I was the registrar at Milwaukee Public Museum, uh, which is a person who takes care of the, the uh, collection records. I have to deal with the uh, incoming and outgoing material, all the insurance, the shipping. Anytime museums have to loan objects to other museums, that goes through the registrar's office, and that's what I did. 
So it's a lot of logistics, a lot of uh, networking between myself and other museum people around the country, working with a lot of shipping companies. The, the registrar of a museum has their hand in basically everything that goes on. A lot of exhibit installation, part of that was some of the things I did. So uh, that was a big job. I enjoyed that. And then from there, I went to Texas Tech in 1990 and became the registrar there. And I was the registrar at Texas Tech for five years. And then in 1995, I became history curator. And I did that for 20 years and uh, retired in, 19, in, in 2015. And so that's, that's the, in a nutshell, that's basically my, my academic and professional life. I started working in museums in 1980 while I was an undergraduate at Western Illinois University. So, uh, in a real sense, I have been working in museums now for 39 years. I was a curator at a at the student museum at the at the university museum there for and while I was an undergraduate, did all kinds of fun things, exhibits, uh, took care of the collection, learned all about uh, collections documentation from the people from the guy who hired me, and that's where it began. So when you were in school for your degrees, were you taking courses that were geared towards public history, or were those even available, or were you doing more of an academic track? Yeah, yes and no. There weren't formal courses in public history. I had the fortune of having several professors who who were really interested in public history and taught some of their uh, topics from that perspective. I had a course on uh, doing public doing research using archives things like that, and I had one professor who was really into public history a great deal, so uh, he taught he taught sessions on um, doing oral history interviews and you know, things like things of that nature. So I was exposed to it early on in a, a cursory sense, but uh, and, and, and more of it also as an as a graduate student. I did more archival archival work. And oral histories, uh, we talked in graduate school, I did more oral history type work. While I was in graduate school, I was at the Milwaukee Public Museum, like I said. So um, I was doing museum work as well as standard graduate level history work. It sounds like your research interest and practice is living history. And yeah. um, could you tell us? your definition of what living history is and living history educator? Yeah, I actually do that as a, um, in my living history lectures, I, I do a PowerPoint presentation on living history and I give a definite, I give two definitions. One of them is living history and the other is material culture. And my living history definition is that living history is a live education based multi-sensory representation of an historical era or event which utilizes at its core the appearance, skills, sounds, and material culture of a people interpreted and presented to and for a modern-day audience. And that's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it all, it all deals with using material culture and using, the, using all of the senses in conveying the story of a people of the past. And you would oh. prefer yourself as a living history educator to be called yeah, a living history I, yeah, educator? Yeah, we, we mm -hmm. tend to throw those terms around, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of debate about, okay, well, what, why should we call ourselves living historians as opposed to dead historians? That's kind of the joke. Um, <laughs> we're calling ourselves educators because that's essentially what we are. So we're, I'm a living history educator. 
Sometimes you can say living history interpreter, which is perfectly okay. But people, the general public, doesn't necessarily understand what interpreter means. They think that we speak different languages and translate. <laughs> so living history educator basically says what it needs to say. We educate people through living history. And uh, I need to say also that I started doing living history at the same time I started working in museums. I started doing living history in 1980. My first museum job, one of the first things I did was to help plan a living history event. So my living history goes back, also goes back 39 years. So what was that first event? Uh, it was a uh, it was a mountain man rendezvous, fur trade rendezvous, which is a historical which was a historical depiction of the gatherings that the mountain men would have in the Rocky Mountains as they gathered in the summertime to sell their furs and buy supplies for the next year. The uh, fur fur trading companies would meet them at a predetermined place with wagon loads full of supplies and goods and things like that. And the fur traders, trappers, traders would meet them and trade the furs that they got in, in exchange for trade goods, blankets, guns, things of that nature. It's basically a big party that lasted about two, three weeks. And of course, the trappers there, traders, Indians, everybody gathered in one place, and it was just a big, big hoedown. And so what we did was try to depict a little bit of that sense of gathering. So we had some of the local mountain man reenactors there showing off skills and crafts and we had other people there doing crafts and things like that and it was a nice big day and that was my very first living history experience that was may of 1980. that sounds pretty cool my hometown is in northern california just in the uh, gold country area and so we had an annual what they called the gold nugget day parade uh and the gold nugget days uh which was Build as a you know a reenactment of the mountain men coming together, but basically it was an excuse for clampers to get drunk together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah, we didn't, do that. We didn't get get, any, get drunk on campus because that would have been bad. Yeah, so. <laughs> right. It's yeah, it's 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 a totally different experience, I'm sure. But it was a very nice event, and the museum was open, and we had representatives from other other parts of campus uh, participating, and had games and things like that. So it was, it was kind of a fun day. Could you tell us the difference between a first-person interpretation and a third-person interpretation? It's quite difficult for you know someone who doesn't know what interpretation is and the differences. Right. Yeah, well, basically, first of all, interpretation is basically the teaching, the conveying of the message that you wanted to pass on to your audience and interpretation is basically how you do it. The one way of saying interpretation is interpretation is just another way of teaching. Uh, explaining to the public what they're seeing, what they're hearing, why people are dressed the way they are, what, what the lifestyle is like that the uh, interpreters are, are trying to portray. Um, and there are a couple of ways to do this. First person interpretation is basically when the interpreter is casting himself as that person back in time, being in that time period, doing the things that that, time, that person in that time period would do. Uh, in other words, it's saying, I do it this way because this is what I do, this is who I am, and this is, this is you know, and, and showing the audience how a person would do it as they're being that person is kind of like acting in a way. It, it takes a little bit of acting ability to be able to pull that off. Third person interpretation is the interpreter is in the modern day, 
but maybe dressed in the time period that he's depicting. Not saying, I do it this way. He's saying, they did it this way. And so he's interpreting for the modern-day audience as a member of the modern-day time period. He's talking about what's going on in the past. Now, there's another mode of interpretation that some places like to do, and that's called ghost interpretation. And ghost interpretation is the person, the interpreter, is from the time period he's depicting, but he's aware of the modern day. He's a ghost. So it's it, what he says is, unlike how you do it today, this is what we did during my time. So the ghost is actually comes from the historical time period, and he presents himself in the modern-day time period. And that's, an, that's a real effective way to do it because there's always going to be that person in the audience that tells, that asks the first-person guy what about television, radio, things like that. The first-person interpreter is not going to know about those things because he's not from the modern time period. The ghost interpreter may be able to address that because he'd be aware of those things even though he's not from the modern time period. He's a ghost in the present who was from the past. So those are three. And uh, there's another mode of interpretation that's become very popular. It's called time travel. The time travel interpretation is a total immersion interpretation where the visitor participates, fully participates in the event. So we dress the visitor in the, the clothing. We give them things to do. They actually participate as a person in the time period. So there are actually four modes of interpretation that we like to do during uh, in, in living history. Uh, just to get back to the, the career angle for a second here, what, how did you end up finding these positions back when you were going to school? Did you know someone? I mean, you, you mentioned before that you, you've had some positions where you were networking and you got the job because you knew the person. But when you were a student, what was the actual uh, process of finding a job in your field like? Um, okay. Well, first of all, I grew up in Chicago. I've always been interested in museums. I went to museums when I was a kid. Back in high school, I had memberships to the Field Museum, the Art Institute, Chicago Historical Society. So uh, interest in museums for me was something that happened very early on. I always thought I'd want to work in a museum and thought that it would be, I, I, want, I, I always intended to work in a museum in one way or another. When I went away to college, I found out that there was a little museum on campus, so I went up there and talked to the people and, and, and started uh, working. I had a work-study job. At the, at the little museum on campus, and that was my first museum job. And uh, so it was, went from there. Now, when I was looking for a place to go to graduate school, I was engaged at the time to a woman who um, uh, was interest, was doing library work. So we tried to find a school that offered museum studies as well as library science, and that's how we found University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. So we went to Milwaukee, enrolled in graduate school. She was doing her graduate degree in library science, and I did my graduate degree in history and museum studies and art history. That's where I went. I, I spent a large amount of my time during graduate school at the Milwaukee Public Museum, working there while I was a student, also taking traditional classes on campus at the same time. And so upon graduation, or just before graduation, the registrar position was open, and they asked me if I was interested in applying for it. I, by that time, I'd already been, to the, been at the museum there for about two years as a student, so they all knew me. They all knew what I could do, and I was very popular. 
So they offered me the opportunity to apply for the job of registrar, and basically I was hired, and I was interviewed, and I got the job there. So basically I had a foot in the door right, right away. So, uh, And it tends to work that way in a lot of cases. I've talked to some of my former graduate students who've gotten into the field, and by and large, majority of them got into jobs that, where they either interned or whether they or they they had volunteered at some point or had some kind of connection with the institution. And in other ways, this gets into another thing that I can talk about later. I, I, my mentoring, uh, I've been able to actually introduce them to people in the field where they would have a they would get to know professionals in the in the in the field and 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 go from there. But in my case, I had a place, I was already placed in the museum, so I was pretty well known at the, at the, at the Milwaukee Public Museum. And uh, when the job came along, I'm the person that they thought about, so they hired me. And I was there for until 1990 when I found out about the job at Texas Tech. And somebody put the job notice in my mailbox at the Milwaukee Building. I had, to this day, I have no idea who did that. Oh, how but the job, the job notice was in my mailbox mm -hmm. at the museum, at the Milwaukee Museum, and I applied for the job at Texas Tech and interviewed and got it. But for me, personally, the way it happened was I was in the right place at the right time. I was already there. And I was pretty well known, and something came along, and they, they thought I would be a good, good fit. That's good. That makes a lot of sense, because that's actually one of the kind of a recurring theme with people I've been interviewing for this podcast is that a lot of people get their positions through networking, which is basically what you were doing. You you knew people right. who knew people. And so you had people that were looking out for you and somebody slipping a note in your in your mailbox or whatever, they, however it may right. manifest. But you've got... <laughs> You've got, I, I don't know if they were trying to help me or get rid of me. But <laughs> well, either way, <laughs> either way, someone either is, way yeah, <laughs> either way, you know, someone who knows something about you. And so the networking is yeah. kind of a very important component to finding a career in this field is the more people, you know, the better your chances are, because we may like to talk about. Actually, I don't know if anyone actually even talks about academia as a meritocracy anymore, but the networking and who, you know, really is essential. And so one of the things I'm always telling my students is that you need to reach out to other people uh, because the, that's how you're going to find your, get your foot in the door at a lot of places in this field. Or volunteer. That's, that's Many the of the yeah. students who I know have volunteered for jobs. I think it was different in my case because I was in the UK. So I, you know, I, I just went through the uh, standard process of just sending 50 applications to 50 different institutions. And that's how I ended up at the Museum of Texas Tech University and met Henry. So I, I just wanted to go back to your, the more theoretical applications of living history um, in terms of um, public history. So from your experience, how much difference does the authenticity of the artifacts that you wear make a difference in your presentation for your intended audience? Well, it, it makes the primary difference. It's, it's very, very important because when I talk about living history, I emphasize the use of material culture in the, in those programs. And actually, my, I have a definition for material culture that I use. Material culture is the is at the center, right at the center of living history. It, it's it's everything we do. My definition of material culture is the tangible evidence 
of a past or present human culture, including its objects, structures, printed communications, and food, and everything made with human hands and human ingenuity is a considered material culture. Basically, everything that humans have created. And in terms of living history, it's everything we wear, use, listen to, see, touch, taste. It's all material culture. In fact, that, that ties directly into the, uh, the, the living history through material culture utilizes all the senses. The authenticity of the material culture, whether we're talking about the hammer that the carpenter or the blacksmith uses or the, the clothing that the soldier wears or the uh, saddle gear or the firearms, things like that, that has to be accurate in terms of the time period. Because if it not, it defeats the, if it's not, it defeats the educational purpose. And uh, if you're not using the proper items for the time period you depict, depicting, in my opinion, you're lying to the audience because you're saying that these things were were being used by this person when, in fact, they were not. So you, the, the authenticity is extremely important to the uh, approach of doing living history correctly. There's one part where I talk about the use of original artifacts as opposed to reproductions, and that's very controversial in the museum field. There are times when most of the time you, can, you use reproductions, and I prefer to use reproductions because, for one thing, they're built better. Our, our techniques, our metallurgy is much better than it was in the 19th century, so reproduction firearms, for example, would be a whole lot better. They're a lot safer, and you, you, you definitely want to try to preserve your originals as much as possible. Uh, there are exceptions to that. There are some things that aren't made as reproductions, like, for example, Sherman tanks. They don't make Sherman tanks as reproductions. When you see Sherman tanks being used at a World War II living history event, they're the real thing. They're real World War II Sherman tanks. Sewing machines, treadle sewing machines, you don't find reproductions of those. There may be some that you find that were rebuilt, but chances are better than not that what you're looking at is, a, is an original treadle sewing machine. And taken care of properly, they still work and things like that. So there are things that you really have to, you don't have a choice. You have to use originals. Even when you're talking about a historic structure, there's only one Mount Vernon. So if you want to do living history at Mount Vernon, you got to use the real thing because they don't make reproductions of Mount Vernon. So in terms of historic structures, again, you have to use the real thing. But by and large, reproductions are the way to go. And one of the things that I like to talk about this relates to your question is the authenticity of it. When you're using a reproduction, it's going to look new because it is new. And mm -hmm. during the time period that you're depicting, it's that object was take, for example, the, right. uh, a tin cup. That tin mm -hmm. cup is going to look new because it was new. You don't want to use an antique tin cup because it's going to look 150 right. years old. Right. You want to look, use something that looks like it was just made two, two, day, two weeks ago. So, and so in that case, that's also a very good reason for using reproductions. They don't look like antiques. So what are the limitations of what a living history educator can represent? A lot of it's going to depend on who you are, your particular ethnic background. For example, I could, I would have a hard time depicting a German officer during World War II. Sorry, but it's not going to happen. I would have a hard time depicting uh, one of Martha Washington's maids. It's not going to happen. I'm not a woman. There are limitations to what I can do as a as a living history educator, as a black man, which is okay. 
because in my opinion, I don't care about having to, not being able to depict something that I couldn't possibly do. It's okay. There are so many good impressions that I can do in, in living history that I don't really have to worry about something that I can't do. Some of my favorite ones are U.S. Army soldier on the frontier, commonly called Buffalo soldiers, black soldiers who served on the western frontier. I like doing those. And I've been doing that one for 20-something you know, years. That's an easy one for me to do, and it's a lot of fun. I also like doing other things. I do World War II soldiers, World War II Pacific Marines, World War II European theater soldiers, Texas Revolution period, uh, which is the 1836 era, the, the Alamo battle, things like that. I can do those. I can do, of course, the fur trade, the mountain man era. Those are real easy to do. And most of the frontier frontier history, western frontier history themes I'm very comfortable with doing. Civil War, I can do those. Uh, I actually do do Civil War Confederate because we know that there weren't a lot of black Confederate soldiers, but there were some, which is fine. I can do one of those, and that's a lot of fun too. So there are some limitations to what I can do. Some limitations are based on your skill level. I'm not a musician, so I couldn't portray a historic musician. I don't play anything. I don't sing. You don't want to hear me sing. So <laughs> I, so those are some limitations. I couldn't be a, a traveling minstrel, for example, because I'm not a musician and I don't sing. There are certain skills that I just simply don't have that wouldn't work, work for living history. I am a very good horseman. I do ride horses and I shoot guns. So, so some of those impressions that, that require some of those skills, it, it wouldn't be any problem for me to do because I do have those skills. So what's the U.S. Western living history presence in other countries? Well, um, I know that American living history is really big in Europe. The Germans have really latched onto this years ago, uh, and their catalyst was the uh, fictional works of an author named Karl May. And Karl May had, his, had developed his Western characters. He developed Indian characters. And these stories just really took off like gangbusters in Europe. Uh, in the late 1800s, and that early, when our Western frontier was basically still going on, uh, he was a very popular writer, and these uh, stories became really popular to where there's a whole culture of followers of American Western history in Germany. There are also uh, Western history, living history reenactors in um, Russia, for example. Russia has really also latched onto our Western history. Places like Russia proper, as well as Ukraine and Belarus, they have groups that depict Western history characters that actually set up real camps, and the authenticity is so dead on, you'd never know that you were in Russia. Living history in Europe is also popular because they, because they depict their own history. For example, every year they reenact the Battle of Waterloo, the battle between the French and the British that took place in Belgium in 1815. Well, every year there's a Battle of Waterloo in 1815 that uh, literally the world participates in. I have friends here from the States who went over there to be a part of it. That's a big deal, and they do it right on the battle site. So uh, things like that, that they're very, very popular in Europe. So living history and reenacting are not just an American phenomenon. It's pretty worldwide. The Japanese do their own versions of their history. There are other places throughout the world that, that do uh, living history in, in England, for example, and different things like that. I always argued that when William Shakespeare was presenting his plays, like Henry V, he was actually presenting 
in, a, in some way living history because this historical plays did actually have a, a real historical perspective to it and he was actually depicting a time and a place of a time period going by and um, he used uh, accurate uh, costumes, props, things like that. And so it, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that William Shakespeare was in, in some measure presenting living history. <laughs> it's out there. Would you say that historical drama, like movies and TV today, kind of serve that same purpose? Or do you, think, or do you see a difference there? They, they do serve a purpose. And one of the things that I like about movies, even though some of them aren't nearly as accurate as we would like them to be, sure. they do serve a purpose because they keep the interest alive in a particular time period. You know, nobody was really interested in doing a lot of World War II reenacting and World War II living history until Saving Private Ryan came along or uh, the other World War II programs that came along at that time. It's, that's one thing that, that has really been a real catalyst for living history is the not only movies but but um um anniversaries important anniversaries that come along uh we just went through the 150th anniversary of the civil war and so but also think about the movie gettysburg uh, that came about in the early 1990s that was a big shot in the arm for civil war reenacting it always been very very popular the movie Gettysburg gave it a jump start to where it's, it's even more popular than, than it was. So there are a lot of a lot of things that Hollywood actually does, and westerns too. Their westerns are actually getting a lot better than they used to be, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they utilize a lot of reenactors in their movies. Hollywood has gotten smart enough to understand that reenactors come with their own gear, their own their own camp gear, their own clothing, their own knowledge of things, so they don't have to spend a ton of money trying to train people to do things that reenactors already know how to do. So a large part of what what Hollywood movies are able to do is thanks to the reenacting community. I know you deal with a lot of firearms Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to ask you how you feel about historical firearms um, in connection with the controversial issues today. Yeah, well, there is, obviously I love historical firearms because they relate directly to what I do as an educator. And it's really hard to talk about some subjects without talking about guns. They have been a part of our history for many, many years, and they, they probably will be. So you can't really discuss this without talking about guns. Not I'm not just talking about in terms of battles and armies, but everyday life, particularly everyday frontier life. If you're a settler on the let's see the somewhere along the Illinois River in eighteen twenty, chances are you've got guns in the house because this is a way of life. You have to protect yourself and you have to provide food for your family. One of the neat things about firearms history that I like is that firearms technology is tied directly into the development of American technology. When you think about firearms and the development of guns and how guns operate, you're talking about some very intricate precision machines. And the the whole idea of how to do one thing to make a whole series of events happen within that machine to make the other thing, the other part of the machine work, it's just a tremendous... Thing. Now, the firearms industry, which by and large was centered on the uh, Connecticut River Valley, 
in places like New Haven, Connecticut, Hartford, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, all these places. And that was the Silicon Valley of the uh, firearms industry in the early, early 19th century. All of these industries were tied into other industries that were happening at the very same time. Bicycle industry, typewriter industry, sewing machines, all of these things were going on at the same time because what you've got is the ability to create a precision machine that has dozens and dozens of parts that all operate in unison with each other to make the machine work. For example, if you've got, if you're familiar with Smith & Wesson firearms manufacturer, then you might also be familiar with Smith Corona, the typewriter manufacturer. The Smith, they were the same people. And in many cases, what you have is these, these precision machine craftsmen would they farm themselves out from different company to company and creating the same type of technology to make these machines work. So Remington firearms, Remington typewriters. Okay, you have sewing machine companies that also made parts for firearms, made parts for typewriters. All these people were intertwined with each other. It's almost incestuous, where they had the same the same people working on the same working on different machines that employed their expertise and craftsmanship to make these precision parts work. So the history of firearms is really the history of uh, development of American technology. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is very simply that people owned guns back then. And uh, whether you talk about firearms for defense, firearms for military use for wartime, firearms for uh, for hunting, it was there, and it was it was a very very so important what, what aspect about today? of their lives. What about today's gun today's control? controversies? I have a problem with how the uh, firearms industry, not so much firearms industry, but I'm going to say places like the NRA. I mean, I get the Second Amendment. I understand that. It's, it's a very important amendment, a very important part of the Constitution. But when somebody has a massacre at a school and the people in the NRA get on and say, talk, start talking about Second Amendment rights, I have a problem with that. My first reaction would be, let's contact the family, victims of the families of that school, and uh, let's send our condolences to them and tell them that we understand. Now, what's interesting is the NRA was originally founded to promote the safe firearms education and to promote firearms responsibility. And I really wish they would get back to that because that's what it's really all about. It's not all about just the Second Amendment. It's about making sure that people use firearms responsibly. And I think the NRA really needs to take the lead on that. And uh, I'm, I'm a believer in gun control. I think that if there's somebody out there who cannot use a firearm safely and responsibly, they shouldn't have one. And I have no problem with that. I have no problem with telling somebody, you've already proven that you can't use this gun. You don't need this anymore. You cannot have one anymore. And I think it all ties also ties into the whole uh, awareness of mental health. Of Obviously, the person is not sane who does that. It ties into how you try to identify these individuals and prevent something like that happening. I think there should be an emphasis on mental health issues. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in, um, in control in, in, in that context. Yeah, I have no problem with that. If, if you want to talk about machine guns, I like machine guns. I think machine guns are fantastic machines. I think they're, you're talking about precision, precision machines. That's really a good example of how something can be made to work in the way that 
they do. I would love to try to fire a, a machine gun. I've never done it before, but I would do it at a gun range where it's safe and umpteen million controls on it so that it's made sure, uh, make sure that it's safe and nobody gets hurt. But I wouldn't take one out in the street and do it. And do you, do you teach yeah. some of this while you're doing your living history? Yeah, actually, mm -hmm. I do. When I mm -hmm. when I teach, for example, at the Ranching Heritage Center, I teach the historical firearms seminar for the uh, volunteers, and I go into that. And we also have one of the sheriff's deputies come in and talk about the penal code and laws regarding firearms and firearm safety. And I, I talk about the uh, use of the different firearms for having the right gun for the right time period, and I bring my examples in and show. I talk about that, and I talk about firearm safety with regard to those things and what you should and shouldn't do and things like that, just so that people know. And we talk about uh, not only not, not only guns, but we talk about knives, swords, different other types of blades, things like that that people should know about. So yeah, we have a very strong fire, uh, safety contingent that we deal with when we when we uh, train volunteers. And I've done that with other places too. I did a session at the uh, Mountain Plains Museum Association meeting mm -hmm. last year, where uh, my particular section part of the talk was on firearm safety. And you, you just won an award, didn't you? Yeah, wasn't that fun? I just won the award. It's called the, it's called the Jack Noakes Outstanding Service Award. Jack Noakes was uh, one of the directors, a past director of the uh, Texas Association of Museums, and he retired from that. I think he's still practicing law somewhere. He's an attorney, in addition to a, a museum professional, and they named the award the award for him. And what it is, it's the it's, a, it's the highest honor given by the Texas Association of Museums to an individual. They don't give it every year, so there's only a handful of us who have this award. And this year, I was the award recipient. I received it at the El Paso meeting in Fort Worth, just like, and then and, uh, not and at the El Paso meeting just last week. So oh, uh, yeah, congratulations! It was, it, was, it was kind of a it was a shock to me when I found out I was getting it. When they called me, I thought they were going to be uh, asking me to serve on the awards committee, which I certainly would have done, is no problem. But I found out, they told me that, no, I'm receiving the award. I was nominated for this award. <laughs> it knocked me off my feet. I really had no idea that was coming. That's wonderful. But that's pretty nice. It was a very prestigious yeah. award, and I was really glad yeah. to have it. It was a service award, wasn't it? Service yeah. award, yeah, yeah, for my uh, yeah. service to the Texas Museum community. Over the 25, now going on 29 years that I've been with uh, Texas Museums. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Congratulations. The Texas Association of Museums version of the Oscars. So you mentioned at the beginning of all this that you are the founder of an organization called History by Choice. And so what is that? Basically, History by Choice is nothing other than me. That's <laughs> just a name that I gave myself. I decided to form... And it's, it's not even a company. It's not anything. It's just a name that I go under when I'm doing living history programs. Uh, history by choice started out as, um, I was playing around with my initials HBC and I just came up with history by choice. It just seemed the natural. So I, I developed this, uh, my business card with that on it. And I also utilized a monogram that I had actually developed using my initials. I had actually developed when I was in high school. Basically what it is is just my little MC. I decided to start it up in the event that sometime in the future I do actually have a real company, and that's what I'll call it. Uh, right. But it's just something fun that I came up with, just kind of an uh, alternate alternative to using my name. 
Great. All right. Well, we will uh, watch for it to become a uh, a powerhouse in the history consulting field. I forgot to ask you, what was the most significant artifact in the collection for you as the keeper of the history collection? <laughs> for me personally? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's easy. The museum collection has, among its artifacts, a uh, Sharps rifle. Sharps was a uh, firearms company in the, the uh, mid mid to late 19th century that specialized in building hunting rifles. And uh, one of the guns there is a firearm that I did the research on. It was a Sharps rifle, a f- uh, 40 caliber rifle, and I, it was donated to the museum by the owner's daughter in the 1950s. It was originally owned by a fellow named John Wesley Moore, who was a famous buffalo hunter in the 1870s in Texas. The rifle was built, it was ordered in in, uh, December of 1876 and was shipped out of the factory in January of 1877. And I have all of that documentation on that, including a letter from the uh, firearms dealer ordering that gun. And I have uh, shipping information of when that gun was shipped out. And all of that came from the Sharps Archives, which is a private collection now, owned by a guy in Philadelphia, a fellow that I know who's a Sharps collector. I uh, contacted him and got all the information based on the serial number. And so not only do we know who owned it, we know a a good chunk of the firearms history from the time it left the factory up to today, practically, and uh, it was also owned by a famous buffalo hunter, so it makes it very special, so, so, and, and it's also a really interesting piece of American history. So that is my favorite firearm in the collection, and I don't know if it's the most significant, uh, not firearm, the most significant artifact in the collection, but it's certainly my favorite artifact in the collection because we know so much about it and it's so well documented. Thank you. Sometimes we wrap this up by going around and talking about recommendations of interesting things that we have seen recently that are history or museum related. Uh, do either of you have anything that you feel interested in talking about? Oh, sure. Um, there is an organization that I really like. It's called the, the uh, acronym is ALFAM. And ALFAM stands for the Association for Living History, Farm, and Agricultural Museums. It's basically the living history wing of the museum profession. And it's composed primarily of museum professionals who deal with living history or museum professionals who deal with material culture. And they have a, they meet every year. This year they're meeting in Canada. They go to, they meet in Canada about every third year. It's been around since the 1960s. In fact, it was founded at Durbridge Village, Massachusetts. We have, uh, I, I was, I served a couple of terms on the board. It's a good professional organization that deals with living history programming, historical skills, heirloom crops. Large, large part of this organization has to do with farming and agriculture. That's how it was founded. But it also deals with other things, uh, historical life ways, historic food ways, uh, clothing, textiles, tools, equipment, firearms, anything and everything that goes with material culture and living history, this organization does. And they publish the proceedings of the conference every year. Uh, in fact, this year's proceedings, I've got an article in there on buffalo hunters, which mm-hmm. I, I did a talk last at the last conference last year on buffalo hunters. 
So that's one of my favorite areas of expertise and also one of my favorite areas for living history. So I, I did that, and they're, they're, they cover so many different topics. They cover a lot of topics. And uh, people in that organization that are literally experts in the field. As, as I've said uh, last week in my acceptance speech for that award, I said that our colleagues and our friends are often the same people. And that, that's very true with the Alfam people, that your colleagues and your friends are the same people. Oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, Susie, do you have anything that you'd like to share? Yes. I spent about a third of what Henry spent as a part of his career as a professor at, at the Museum of Texas Tech University. I'd like to recommend that museum because it's an, a unique encyclopedic museum that ranges from world cultures to anthropology to fine arts to paleontology. And um, it holds significant Southwest Native American pottery and textiles and as, as well as a gallery called Changing World, which shows the different theories about the earth and dinosaurs and the N.C. Wyeth artworks, N.C. Wyeth's artworks. And um, the building is uniquely designed after a mesa. I've never seen a building that's, that was designed after a mesa, <laughs> but I, th I think it's pretty unique. And and the Center for Museum Science and Heritage Management, when I was teaching, it's now called the Master of Arts in Heritage and Museum Science. Uh, something like yeah. that. And they keep changing it. <laughs> they keep changing it. So there are only few programs that actually call museum studies museum science. And apart from one of one university, I know is the University of Tulsa. And I think this is a very important, it's, it's an important discussion during the beginnings of the International Committee for Museology's establishment because um, they were trying to prove theories that museology is a science. And one of the scholars who was presenting these theories was Zbigniew Zbyslav Stransky, who is one of the foundational authors and scholars with ICAFOM and the Center for Museum Science or the Museum Science Program was established quite early in 1974. Yeah, that sounds really cool. In the last half of March, I and my family spent like 12 days putting together the massive uh, set of Legos for the Saturn V rocket, the NASA rocket that sent people to the moon back in the 60s. And it took us 12 days to do it because it's this massive thing with almost 2,000 pieces in it. Uh, and then the day after we finished that, uh, we were vacationing and we actually ended up in Florida and we went to see the Kennedy Space Center and went to the visitors center there, the Kennedy Space Center, where they actually have one of the surviving Saturn V rockets on display in this big, massive building. I mean, the Saturn V rocket's almost 400 feet long, so it's this massive building uh, containing this massive rocket. And then they also have the uh, space shuttle Atlantis in there on display, and you, they have it set up in a really cool way where you can actually get up really close to it. You're probably about 10 feet away from it, I guess, probably, you, so you can't touch it, but you're close enough where it feels like you can almost touch it. But then they also have uh, uh, what they call the rocket garden, where they have the various rockets used for the Mercury missions, the Gemini missions, and various other rockets all set up, uh, kind of all next to each other. And it's just a really interesting um, experience. It's uh, my 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 family. I mean, we're all space buffs. Um, 
my son's <laughs> my son's middle name is Apollo. It was named that after the uh, moon missions, and so it was really interesting. I watched, those, I watched Apollo Eleven on TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so it was. It's a really yeah, interesting. It's a, yeah. Well, you don't look old. <laughs> It's a, it's, but it's a great place to go. And so, if you're in Florida, you know, if you're near Port Canaveral, I mean, a lot of people decided to go to Disney World instead. But I would rather go to NASA. And so, it was really cool to go see the Kennedy Space Center. So that's my recommendation for the day. That's nice. Well, that's cool. That's uh, the only thing that I would, re- I would like to see in Florida. And I've never been to Florida, but there are only two places that I want to see in Florida. One of them is Saint Augustine, and the other one is Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. You can have the rest. Yeah. Very, very yeah. educational, as opposed to Disney World, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would love to see Saint Augustine thing, too. Aviation and space geek. Yeah. In addition to being a railroad geek and a uh, mm-hmm. uh, history geek, I'm a aviation and space geek, aerospace geek. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Henry and Susie, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having. Oh, us. thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally got this pulled off. <laughs> and thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail dot com. For Susie Chung and Henry Crawford, I am Rob Denning. Adios.